streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. And we continue in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 6, 2. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Our text this morning is from Matthew chapter 28, and I'm going to do something either extremely bold or extremely foolish, uh, which is invite you to look with me in the brief time that we have at this entire chapter. Now, this is a chapter that when I have preached this, I ordinarily preach in at least three parts, sometimes more. Uh, but I thought this morning it would be helpful to catch the whole context, one more of these Easter resurrection texts, uh, and I, I want us to see the flow of the writing of this account of the first day of all things being made new, the day of resurrection. So we'll begin with verse 1 of Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. 
Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep, him, keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. I love the way that this chapter opens. There's a wonderful little word here that Matthew uses, epiphoskuse, which, which depicts just the first glimmering rays of light piercing the darkness of the morning. You and I woke this morning, if you're an old person like me, no, some of you said stop saying you're old because you're my age. Uh, if you're a person of a certain age and wake up very early, as I do, uh, you got to see that piercing of the darkness by the sun's first rays of morning. And this morning began like every other morning in human history. Out of the darkness of night, the sun rose, pierced the darkness, and we have another day. And from one perspective, in fact, the perspective of the man that the Bible calls the wisest of all the old covenant people who ever lived, Solomon. From his view, as Daniel read in that first lesson, the longer we live here seeing the sunrise and the sunset and go around, rise again, the more we begin to realize that there's nothing new. It's really just another day. I remember at some point early in my life realizing that there was never anything new in the news. All that it told us was who it happened to yesterday. I mean, there's always the same story. It's just different places, different people. And, and so Solomon had seen this living a long life experiencing so much, and if you read Ecclesiastes, it's a, a profoundly depressing uh, account up until the very end, his final conclusion. In fact, uh, I may have said this to you before, but uh, a 
friend of mine, Tremper Longman, an Old Testament professor uh, and an expert on these particular texts, observed that um, when Solomon was young, he wrote Proverbs, which says, if you do this, this will happen. If you don't do that, this won't happen. Then he said he got old and wrote Ecclesiastes, which basically says, well, not always. Uh, and he's at the not always phase. From this perspective, if you've lived a while, you realize the wisdom of what he says. We have times, as he acknowledges, of exquisite pleasures and joy, but they're fleeting. We have times of excruciating pain and disappointment, but those two go and one day follows another. And if this is all we have, it's a pretty tedious story. The old beer ad was right. You might as you only go around once, grab all the gusto you can, because it doesn't mean anything. And you might as well just find what pleasure you can. But there is another perspective, the one that we hear from Paul in our New Testament lesson, where he speaks of all things being made new in Christ Jesus, who has conquered this sad and tragic cycle of meaninglessness and death, and he's brought new life to bear and entrusted it to us, his people. And so on this particular Eastertide morning with you, I'd like us just to look at how Matthew 28 develops, because here we see very clearly the message that's been entrusted to us, this great message that, that should change everything and that if we truly believe it, does change everything. And then we see what we should always expect to be the pushback to the message, the, the, the challenge that comes whenever we seek to tell or simply to live out the reality of this message. And then finally, what is entrusted to us, the, the great commission. I love the way that the commentator, Frederick Dale Bruner, in his wonderful uh, two-volume commentary on Matthew, he, he divides it this way. He said, we have the mission, we have the counter-mission, and then we have the great commission. That may be an easier way for you to remember it. But I'm focusing first on the message that we see, particularly in verses 5 through 7, as as the messenger, and remember whenever you read angel, read it in your mind as messenger so you don't get silly pictures of Botticelli cherubs, little, you know, fat babies. Uh, these were glorious messengers. The word means messenger. And so this messenger from the presence of God brings the gospel to these women. And it, in essence, is he is risen. Nothing will ever be the same because this one whom you thought had finally been delivered over to death and once again human power and wickedness had had its way and all of your hopes and dreams were dashed. No, that's not where the story ends. He is risen. And that fact that he's risen causes the angel to say three things to them. First, he says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Whatever you are facing today. Now, it's interesting. As they leave, even though they've gotten that message, it says they left, they were afraid. But 
they were also rejoicing. The new message was beginning to find a place and it would finally drive fear out of their hearts. And I want to ask you first, if you believe the message, what are you afraid of? What wakes you up at 3 a.m. with a knot in your stomach and fear? Now, I've always found it a great relief, particularly once I became a parent and would wake up at 3 and wonder if the garage door had ever opened and people had come back, should I check the back? I mean, we all live there, and I'm so grateful that Paul, the apostle, said, and in addition to all this, I have my daily anxiety over the churches. So that's a reality, but we're not to give way to fear. Fear cripples us, and it stands against the gospel of Christ. So I want to ask you what you are afraid of, and if there are things that you think, if I should lose this, my life would no longer have the meaning that I thought it had. I, would, I don't know if I'd really believe that God loved me the way that I have if something happened to this one I love so dearly. You all know I've been, been called recently to go through that. Some of you all have gone far more deeply through it than I ever have. But those are times when we find out whether we believe what we profess to believe. Doesn't mean we slap on a happy face and say, everything is happy, praise Jesus. No, we go, Lord, where are you? What's going on? But we are not overwhelmed by the fear of anything that this life can bring. I think I, one of my first Sundays here, I shared with you my favorite Easter poem. It wasn't Easter, but I was alluding to the resurrection and how crucial it is. And I want to take this advantage to read it again. Part of it is just because of who it is that wrote it. John Updike during my youth was always referred to, John Updike, Prince of American Writers, because he was, I mean, from the 50s on, he wrote these wonderful, often very funny poems for the New Yorker and short stories for them, and then began publishing novels, usually about the uh, immorality of the American middle class living in, the, in New England. So he was not known as a Christian author, though underneath there were profound moral themes. And yet when a Lutheran church in Marblehead, Massachusetts was having an Easter festival and asked him to submit a poem, this is what he wrote. If the Apostle Paul had been a poet, he might have written 1 Corinthians 15 like this. Seven stanzas at Easter. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers each soft spring recurrent. He'd heard some sermons at Easter like that. It was not as the flowers each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the 11 apostles. It was as his flesh hours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might new strength to enclose. 
let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages, let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone and a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we have an angel at the tomb, this is for you physicists, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Brothers and sisters, wherever the church loses this message and makes it a parable, something painted in the credulity of an earlier age, the power of the church is gone because the Holy Spirit owns no other message than this, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And because of that, God's people who have begun to taste the reality of that new life have nothing to fear. It doesn't mean we won't sometimes be tempted to deep and profound fear. It doesn't mean that our hearts won't be broken. But it means that for us, our entire worldview, the way that we are now learning to look at the troubles and the heartaches and the disappointments and the joys and successes that come is from an entirely different perspective. And so what I'm trying to press in this morning is not whether you know this story. I suspect that almost any of you, including kids who are here, could come up and tell this story perhaps far more eloquently than I. I'm asking whether this story has yet begun to own you, to mold you, to shape you, to form you, as the Spirit takes it and begins to make you more like Christ. Fear not. Second, come and see. He doesn't say, he's risen and don't go in, I just want you to take my word for it. He says, I want you to come and see. He's not here, he's risen. Come and see. You may well say, but they could do that. I can't. What, 2,000 years later, over 2,000 years later, what in the world does that mean? And I would encourage you on two fronts. One, God has his attorneys. We're called to be his witnesses. He has his attorneys, the C.S. Lewis's, Tim Keller's, and lots of other people who do it far more academically and philosophically than they. And if you're interested in, in pursuing those kinds of works, Email me, I'll be glad to send you a list of them. But those in the end don't change anybody's mind. What they do is confirm rational reasons for believing for those whose hearts are being moved in that direction. And they are moved in that direction by encountering Christians who are beginning to live Christ. I read a series of interviews a few years ago 
with a number of pastors who'd now come out and said they no longer believed in God. Didn't just not be, want to be in church. They hadn't just left ministry. They now declared themselves more than agnostics. They declared themselves atheists. And I was fascinated and saddened that the story every one of them told, not a single one of them told a story of having in his studies come to a point of having said, how could I believe that? What triggered every one of them was feeling that they'd not been treated well by Christians. Now that's pretty pathetic if you're a pastor and you're going to lose it because some people treat you the way that we pastors treat you. But um, still, you know, broken people. But the bottom line is, it's people will come to know the risen Christ if they come in to a place where God's people have gathered and are trying to grow together and we stumble and we blow it, but we confess and we repent and we embrace again and we refuse to let anything separate us from one another. That's the key. And that's how this world, especially in a time like ours with the, the culture wars where everybody's at each other, where families have a hard time at dinners because you can't talk to each other anymore. Come and see. To those who come to dinner at your place, would they want to know Jesus Christ? I must confess to you, some presbytery meetings that I've attended over the years, I've left and thought, I pray that there were no non-Christians here because no one who heard all the pastors going after each other would ever want to be a Christian. You and I are to be the show and tell. People are to be able to meet us and begin to see that, you know what? The gospel may be worth considering. Maybe these things be true. Fear not, come and see. And then he says, go and tell. Now you, you've seen, now go and tell. And that's what's entrusted to us. If you have come and seen, he's called us to at least live in such a way that those who don't yet believe might have reason to believe by knowing you. And at some point you have to tell. Now, some of you have marvelous evangelistic gifts that I don't have. I've known people who, you know, they sat with somebody on an airplane for five minutes uh, and they were, you know, the people were weeping and, and coming to Jesus. Um, we don't all have that gift. That's a gift of personal evangelism. But we are all called when God throws the door open to be able in some way, we don't have to make a presentation or an argument, but just to say, let me tell you my story. Let me just tell you what, what God's done for me. I'm not where I want to be yet. I still blow it a lot, but let me tell you the changes that he and his grace is working within my life. Fear not, come and see, go and tell. I confess to you, when I'm traveling, I'm much more like Tony Campolo, who said, if I'm sitting next to somebody, if I want to talk to them, I tell them I'm a teacher. Uh, if, I, if I don't want to talk with them, I say I'm an evangelist. So that's the first move. It's the message. Fear not, come and see, go and tell. Very quickly, the second move is this counter mission. 
whenever we begin to seek to live Christ, and particularly if we begin in any way, shape, or form to talk about it, there's going to be pushback. It may be very gracious, it may be not so gracious, but there will always be resistance. Why? Because whether they get it here, people instinctively know that if this story is true, it changes everything. They know that if this is true, then they better get on board with it and find out who is this one who rose from the dead. And so there's always this attempt to disparage it, even this absolutely silly attempt at the beginning. Can you imagine? I, I think I slept pretty soundly last night. And um, I can't tell you anything that went on in my bedroom. I mean, if Bill Dybert and a group of his buddies decided to come in and have an, an all-night playing cards and talking to each other and then left before I woke up, I have no clue because I was asleep. And yet they give them money and say, tell them that what happened. Tell them that his disciples came and stole them away while you were asleep. I mean, on the face of it, it's absurd. And the idea that these frightened disciples who had run away while Jesus was alive would now make a bold and daring attempt to steal him away and then go to painful and shameful deaths bearing testimony, not one of them recant. It's just, it beggars the imagination. This is what happens when people begin to think about it and conceive it. I'm sure that uh, some of you young people who are philosophy majors spend summer at the beach reading through uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein's uh, notebooks. Uh, Witt Wittgenstein actually was one of the most seminal philosophers of the 20th century. He was at Cambridge. He if you know philosophy at all, he's the one who ripped the guts out of logical positivism, showed them that it didn't work, and, and was absolutely distinctive voice. He was Jewish, he was you know, known as a non-believer, he'd grown up in Vienna with Freud. And, uh, so he was on his way to Bergen, Norway, where he would go to write and study philosophy during his summer breaks. And his biography, Ray Monk, went to his notebooks and found this text. On the, sh on the ship to Bergen, Wittgenstein wrote of Christ's resurrection and of what inclined even him to believe in it. If Christ did not rise from the dead, he reasoned, then he decomposed in the grave like any other man. Wittgenstein wrote, he is dead and decomposed. He had to repeat and underline the thought to appreciate its awfulness. For if that were the case, then once more, then Christ was a teacher like any other and can no longer help us. And once more, we are orphaned and alone. So we have to content ourselves with wisdom and speculation. And if that is all we have, then, quote, we are in a sort of hell where we can do nothing but dream, roofed in, as it were, and cut off from heaven. If he wanted to be saved, to be redeemed, then wisdom was not enough. He needed faith. The countermission will always fail if people think through the implications of the countermission and realize that if Christ is not raised from the dead, 
then we live in a hopeless world. The Great Commission. So they went to Galilee, to the place that he pointed. And he met them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Brothers and sisters, you, live, you and I live in an age where we are basically told that we have no right to speak of the things that we most deeply believe if it might trouble someone. People today have triggers. I hope my oldest daughter isn't listening. Rachel, I adore you, dear, dear friend, but uh, Rachel got a little bit in this language. She'd always been a tough one, kickboxer, great athlete, brilliant gal, but she, you know, in her, oh, Rach, I'm dead if she hears this. Um, <laughs> but she kind of got into this trigger thing. Don't trigger me with that stuff. So her brother, whom we've been praying for, came back, this big former Marine, extreme athlete, and we're sitting at dinner the first night, and he said something outrageous as he has made a career of doing. And she said, don't, don't even go there, that, that triggers me. And he slapped the table and stood up and says, triggered you? You used to be tough, you used to kickbox. You used to stand for something. Get and began needling and finally she got mad and stood up. He said, there you are, that's my girl, that's my sister. <laughs> Don't ever give me this trigger stuff. Listen, we want to be sensitive. We want to be kind. We want to be thoughtful and gracious and listeners. But brothers and sisters, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto Jesus. And he says, in that authority, I'm telling you this. I'm giving you a charge. Now, often when we preach the Great Commission, and I'm, we're to the Great Commission, and I've got two minutes, but I really am almost done, because you, you know the Great Commission. But too often, because of the way we translate it, our inclination is to say, okay, there's a series of commands here. He said, go, make disciples, baptize, teach. No, there's one imperative, only one imperative in what he said, and it's make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. What right do we have to do that? Because the one who has risen from the dead, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, has entrusted us with this. It's the mission he's given us. Take it, and take it to every part, every people group, every tribe, every tongue, because he's redeeming people from this entire earth. Make disciples. Then the question is, how do we do it? Well, the word actually is translated going. As you go, we're all going, we're going all the time. So as you go, I want you to make disciples. How do I do it? By baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the key there is there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. What these people did in coming forward, taking their vows, saying we're part of this, the church does not envision anyone who is unconnected from the body of Christ. So when you baptize people in, you're baptizing them into the body of Christ, you're incorporating them and saying, you are part of this. Paul's picture of the body, you, you can't just be a hand on your own or an eye or a tongue. To function, you have to be part of the body. Baptizing them in the triune name, teaching them what? We Presbyterians are great, we like to stop right there teaching. Let's teach. We had some good teaching. I learned some new stuff. We don't like the way he finishes the verse. 
teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. The teaching within the church is to call us to the obedience of faith. And that is a mark that we have experienced grace. It's not legalism. It's not going back under the old covenant. It is the obedience of faith. I love Bonhoeffer's beautiful statement that only those who believe obey and only those who obey believe. It's the mark of faith we are beginning to grow up in our own following of Jesus Christ. And the promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What are you afraid of? You know this message. I know you know it. You could have, you could have stood up here and done this. But I want to ask you if this is the message that is shaping the way that you face everything. I'm not asking if your marriage is where you want it to be or, or your work or if you're, if you're getting control over the, the years and years of habitual dysfunctions. That, I mean, I'm not asking if you have it all together. I'm asking if you are facing all of these things through this great good news that calls us not to be afraid, that tells us where we're from, and where we're going, and who we are, and, and who has stepped into this mess in order to make it something beautiful for him. Would you stand?